chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17, we'll start in verse number 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphili- Am- I can never say that. Amphipolis and Ampaliana, they came to Thessalonica, where a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. A uh, key word there we're going to be looking at is reasoned. Third verse, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered... Uh, a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, that these have turned the world upside down, are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Uh, Paul brought him unto Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I I pray for your blessing, Lord, upon the service today. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. I pray that you control what I say and and how I say it. Lord, I pray that it would uh, help us to draw closer to you. May it truly feed us and meet the needs that are present. Lord, I do pray that there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I do pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, may you be glorified. Uh, Lord, I love you and I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. When we finished up chapter 16, it's been a couple of weeks. We had Easter service and the revival, so it's been three weeks since we have been in the book of Acts. 
Paul has just he has, <clears throat> he has started his second missionary journey. If you remember, the Lord did not allow him. He wanted to go back into the regions there off of Galatia. He reported back, and he wanted to head to some key places, but the Lord did not allow it. And the Lord led him directly into Europe. And the first place he entered into is Macedonia. And he came into the city of Philippi. And there was no set synagogue there like he normally would go into. They did not have clearly enough Jewish men in that town to form a synagogue. But it's where we come across Lydia. Um, and she was converted, her household. And then, of course, the last time we looked at it was when the jailer got converted. And we really did see how incredible God is in his sovereignty. Here they are. The men are arrested. The, the, the small church at this time at Philippi just must be uh, just devastated over what's taking place. They've watched Paul and Silas beaten severely. They are cast into the innermost part of the prison. And yet little do they realize that in just a few short hours from the events they're witnessing, how everything is going to be completely turned around. And through all the events that are taking place, it's even going to provide a measure of security for them to be able to meet and worship. As we know, God caused a great earthquake. You have Paul and Silas here in the prison. They just start praying and singing. They were just beaten. They don't know when they're going to get out. And they just start singing, praising God. The Lord causes a great earthquake to hit. The prison doors, which is a separate miracle. The prison doors are every single one is open. All the stocks that were holding all the prisoners are, are freed. And the prisoners don't want to go anywhere. They all, every single person connected that to those two men who just came in, who were charged. Remember their crime that they did. Everybody knew that they were preaching of the true living God. They don't go anywhere. They're all there. The jailer also realizes all the prison doors are open. He, he believes that every single one has ran away. And as was common, that will cost him his life. And when you were faced in that, in that culture, in that time, suicide usually was the answer. He did not go through the shame of the trial and then the execution. So he went to take his own life. Paul stopped and Paul cried out saying, do thyself no harm. We're all here. We haven't left. And the jailer called for a light and he couldn't believe it. Every single man was there. And then he comes in. He heard them too. Remember, he had never met anybody like Paul, put him in prison. Most men were begging for their life, I'm innocent, or just show mercy. And, and, and he did. He put them in the innermost part. Remember, we talked about the stocks he put them into, which would have forced Paul onto his back, which has just been beaten severely. And yet, here these men are praying. I, again, I believe, I, heard, I believe the jailer heard Paul praying for him. And then they're singing. He's like, man, these guys are nuts. What's wrong with them? But then that earthquake hit. They're all there. And here is the man in charge of the prison. Probably a retired Roman military officer. And he just falls down before him. And he, remember, his life, he's not talking about his physical life. That's over with. He heard the charge. He was there. He was brought before. He heard why these men were brought before him. He perhaps, Paul had been there, remember, several weeks. He perhaps even heard of Paul, maybe even heard him preach. And he falls down and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, of course, Paul, we have that great verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets saved. Those in his house get saved. And then the next day, if you remember... The leaders of the city, they come and they want Paul out. They send a message, 
let, let Paul, tell them just to go. They, they were connecting all the dots, too. But now Paul lets them know, by the way, me and Silas were Roman citizens. Why don't you come, you know, you come to us and ask us to leave. Now, Paul wasn't doing that just, just to make a point of who we are. Paul very well understood that this is going to provide a measure of protection for that little church in Philippi. Because when those rulers came, listen, Paul's basically saying that what they did, by the way, could be a capital offense, what they did to Paul. Paul's like, no, I know what you did. And so that's providing protection for that small church. And so now when we pick up the reading in chapter 17, Paul, Paul has left. He leaves Philippi. And he heads to Thessalonica. I'll talk more about Thessalonica in just a minute. What I want to bring out now by way of introduction is the charge that is made against Paul in verse number 6 of Acts chapter 17. It says at the conclusion of the verse, this is during the uproar that had taken place, that these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. What a charge. What, what's something, I mean, think what's being said about these men. They have turned the world upside down. So what happened in Philippi uh, made, it to, uh, made it to Thessalonica and they heard about it. Even what happened in Galatia has made it to Philippi and they've heard what happened. They're saying, listen, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come hither also. Now the truth is, the world is upside down right now. He was just turning it right side up. But in the Bible... We do see men like Paul who have, quote, turned the world upside down. Men that made a difference. Men that stood. Men that changed the culture. Men like Elijah. In one event, you saw a cultural shift take place on Mount Carmel. I mean, that man who was willing to stand, to stand up to Ahab and Jezebel. He, he knew Baal was a false god. Now, the people, understand, the people actually believed Baal was real, that there was this real existence. And Elijah knew, what a bunch of junk. People are nuts. And, and he calls out to the nation of Israel, who should know better. He said, I'll not halt you between two opinions. If God be God, then serve him. If you don't believe it, then don't. Just get away. And he said, let's have a little contest. And... It's one of the greatest stories in the Word of God. I mean, let's face it. Elijah was the perfect man for this event that God had in place. I mean, you get your prophets of Baal. He says, what we're going to do is, we're, we're going to call, you call on Baal. I'll call on the true God. And we'll see which one responds. Let's have one call fire down from heaven and take up the sacrifice. And he has Baal go first. And we all know the story. And they're... they're working their sacrifice and everything that goes with it. And, 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 and Paul starts mocking him. Because, of course, nothing's going to happen because he doesn't exist. There's no truth in it. You can believe what you want to believe, but the day will come when it's based on something that's false. It will fail you. Paul starts mocking. Wait, maybe Bill's sleeping. Yell a little louder. He can't quite hear you yet. And those prophets of Baal, they start cutting themselves. Isn't it amazing that that's common today in the world, that those who are following some type of false religion get into some type of self-harm in order to appease some deity. And so they start cutting themselves, but nothing happens. And then Elijah comes up. 
He has that altar prepared, the, the ditch around the duck. He has it soaked even in water. And then with one prayer, that fire comes down. He changed the culture in that moment. Incredible. Or, or maybe men not so dramatic, but still had such an effect on the people. Men like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, when you read through that, I mean, especially being an American, relating to what God told Jeremiah to preach. The, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're getting ready to overtake him. Jeremiah is going to be the prophet that was before the captivity and after the captivity, and this is before the captivity. And he goes to the king, and, and the people knew what he's proclaiming. He said, just surrender. If you want to save your life, surrender. Don't even fight. This is of God. This is judgment. No reason to fight it. And of course, they're, they're just furious to have him arrested. I mean, again, just the, the boldness that he had demonstrated. Men like Peter, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Incredible. When studying for this this week, I came across this quote. It says, there are people who watch things happen. There are people who make things happen. And there are people who don't know what's happening. <laughs> that was pretty true, actually. Paul would have been one of the ones who made things happen. But what makes these people different? How are we able to turn our world upside down? How can we make a difference to those that are around us, in our family, in our community? How can we genuinely see people converted? Changing their families, changing their towns. We all recognize the great change that our nation desperately needs as it's acting from a false premise. And this change, understand this, takes place in one place. And that is in the hearts of men. It takes place when lives are changed through the power of the gospel. The key to changing our world and turning it upside down lies simply in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's five things that I want us to see today in our text. By the way, this message, I really thought when I did this, I'd finished all the note-taking. It was a lot, like 13, 14 pages of notes. And I thought I could get this done in one Sunday. And then when I finished point number two, I'm like, I'm done now. This is, this is, this is it right here. So this will be a two to a three-part message, perhaps even. <clears throat> but nonetheless, five things that I want you to see that, that Paul and his team led to them changing the world they were in, to turning the world upside down. I'll give it to you right now, if you want to write them down quickly. Five different uh, things here. One, they were propelled, provoked, proved, persistent, and personal sacrifice. Propel, provoke, prove, persistent, and personal sacrifice. We're going to look together both at what happened in Thessalonica and Berea. We're going to combine these. But let me start off by giving some background to this setting. If you were 
if, if you regularly attend on Wednesday night, which I strongly encourage to do, this, I don't put anything less in a Wednesday night than I do in a Sunday morning. And currently we're going through such a key book on Wednesday nights right now, the book of Romans. Prior to that, though, I did cover First and Second Thessalonians. And in the introductory message to First Thessalonians, I covered much information about this town. Let me give some of that out right now so you can see where Paul is going. Thessalonica was a very large town, almost the size of Anchorage, actually. Population at this time was thought to have been around 200,000. It was a trade center. It was on a major trade route. The pagan world flowed through it. It was a crossroads, a commercial center. It had been founded in 316 B.C. by Cassander. He was the king of Macedonia, and he named it after his wife, Thessalonica. She was important in world history because she is the half-sister of Alexander the Great. This is the largest city in Macedonia, and it is the capital of Macedonia. A key city, an important city. It had a major port on the Aegean Sea. Obviously, the language would be Greek, very cosmopolitan. It also had a series of of problems that came with a bigger city, crime. Crime was rampant. Crime was so bad there that when they built houses and even redid their homes, they removed windows because crime was so bad. One commentator in talking about Thessalonica during this time frame said this, It was controlled by idolatrous pagan group of wealthy elites. There was no middle class. And the rest of the people, the majority, were slaves. There was conflict between the slaves and the elites. Immorality was common. Prostitution was both legal and highly organized. Archaeologists found in some of the digs around Thessalonica obscene pornographic images even painted on the outside of houses. Babies were commonly abandoned, left for dead. Divorce was rampant. Murder was common. This was a full-blown pagan city. Paul heads right to the capital. He preached three Saturdays in our text in the synagogue, three Sabbath days. Now, again, I brought this up. I don't have time to dive into it today. I think it's likely. It could have just been the first three weeks. I, I think that's doubtful, though. I think it's dealing with the event that happened over those three Sundays. Because we know from other places in text, when he got to Thessal- Thessalonica, he found work. He even found employment when he was there. He was doing his tent making when he was there. So it's, it's likely he was there longer than three weeks. But the event that's detailed us in Acts chapter 17 took place over three weeks. And it could have been just those three weeks. I don't know. But anyhow, as a result of what takes place over these three weeks, Paul saw a large number of people converted. Greek proselytes, those were Gentiles that were in the town that were already attending the synagogue that have chosen to abandon the paganism and their idolatry of their day and believe in the true God in in a monotheistic approach. They were believing the authority of the Scriptures. So Paul, when he is there and he's preaching, a large number convert. By the way, among them, we're going to be looking at, maybe we get to Acts chapter 20, there's going to be two of the men here that are converted that will end up traveling with Paul. Luke's phrase, not a few. Again, it's one way of saying he had a big crowd. Some Jews, many devout Greeks, many leading women believed. As a result of the large number of conversions... Those who did not convert 
get jealous. They're going to be moved with envy. When someone is moved with envy, something bad's coming. So they decide to cause an uproar. They get some, some men they knew that could lead this uproar and cause just strife in the town over this. What they're doing is they are creating a riot from a false motive, from a poor motive, I should say. America's never seen that at all, have we? The city gets into an uproar. They attack the house of Jason. He would be, uh, that's where they thought Paul was staying, and he likely was staying there at the house of Jason. And some even believe that Jason was a relative of Paul. So they're trying to find Paul and Silas. They attack it, but they don't find him there. But they take Jason out, some of the brethren, before the authorities. The Jews then make the accusation that have turned the world upside down in other places. Now they're come here. They're harboring these disruptors. They're proclaiming that there's a new king. The Lord Jesus Christ. When the people hear this, of course, they're disturbed at all these accusations. And so how it ends up getting settled in that moment is basically through a bond. Jason had to put up money to guarantee that Paul and Silas uh, would leave and not return. Paul would later refer to this in other writings. We dealt with this in 1 Thessalonians when we got there, how this was a hindrance, but we still see how the Lord used it. The Lord is in control. And so it's that evening that Paul and Silas, they head out that night. They're going to travel 50 miles to the west to Berea. This town was not on a major route. It was a city, of course, we're still in Macedonia. Let me read to you from an expert on what... This town was like. He said, Berea is on the eastern slope of the Olympian range. Commands an extensive view of the plain, which is watered by two major rivers. It has many natural advantages. It is now considered one of the most agreeable towns in the area. Plain trees spread a grateful shade over its gardens. Streams of water are in every street. Its ancient name is said to have been derived from the abundance of its waters. And the name still survives in the modern, it's just used with a V instead of a, a B, Varia. It's situated on the left of one of the major rivers, about five miles from the point where the river breaks through an immense rocky ravine on the mountains into this plain. A few... Uh, ruins from the Greek and Roman time frame can still be noticed today. Today, it still has a population of almost 20,000 inhabitants. That's from a book called The Life and, uh, Life and Epistles of Paul. So Berea, although an important town, is not on a major route. But Paul heads there. He begins preaching there. And, it, and we'll, be, we'll dive into this. We won't get to this this week. How they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily. And then you have a key word. Because they did that, therefore, many believed. There's much that this teaches us. So, now, now that we have the background of the study, what's taking place, let's get into some things we see here in the life of these men that led to this accusation that they turned the world upside down. The first P that I gave you was propel. What I mean by that is Paul was willing to go and go and go. Even as he leaves Philippi, after all that is taking place, he stays on his mission. He's heading to Thessalonica. He he has stopover in two towns. 
There's no evidence that he preached here, so it's highly doubtful that he did. Each town, altogether, between Philippi and, I meant to put the slide up there today, but between Philippi and Thessalonica, it's about 100 miles. The towns that, he, that are mentioned here would be each 30 miles in distance apart from each other. So one thing that does teach us, which is, which is probable anyhow, is that Paul probably traveled by horse on his journeys. Um, he could have did the 30 miles walking, but that's, that's really moving and very taxing. So it's much more likely that he was actually traveling by horse at this time on his journeys. And as Paul's plan was, Paul had, I mean, you can see Paul just didn't go into this thing without a game plan. He's heading to major towns everywhere he goes. That's where he concentrates. He expects them, as we're going to see from Ephesus, to reach out into the outlying areas with the gospel at that point. But he always tries to get established a church in a major center and then commission them, now get your area done. Get the gospel out. So he heads to Thessalonica. And he'll begin preaching there. Again, he doesn't stop. I mean, again, if we're going to turn the world upside down, we have to be willing to go. I mean, to understand our responsibility that we have. And you think, Paul, after all that he's been through, I mean, he just gotten beaten severely, thrown in prison. He could have said, you know what, fellas, let's just take a couple months off. Let's just recuperate. The guy doesn't stop. There's something that's grabbing him and driving him. And we know it's two things, don't we? For the love of Christ constraineth me. And Mike wrote at Romans chapter 1 now. He was a debtor. He knew the importance of the gospel. Listen, when you leave this church this morning, when you leave your house tomorrow, you need to see the mission that you're actually on. You need to leave. When you, leave, when you walk out of those doors, when you leave your house tomorrow, you need to realize that the primary reason you're heading out isn't because of your employment. It's you're on a mission to go. The people that are around you are not by accident. The sovereign God is in control. We are going with the message that can turn the world upside down down. When you go to work, instead of arguing why Trump would be a better president, give the gospel. Give the gospel. Work on the heart of the man. We have what the world needs. That's why Paul was willing to go And go, and go, and go. Secondly, look at verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. The second one here is provoke. I'll be finishing up with this point, but boy, I want you to listen to it. This could change how you give the gospel. It says that Paul reasoned with them out of the scripture. He has to the synagogue, as his custom was. By the way, this makes perfect sense. This is what he should be doing. He is starting with those who have a basis of truth, a monotheistic approach, a belief in the scriptures. He starts with those where he once walked in their shoes. 
it uses the word, he's going to reason with them. He's going to use the scriptures, going to use the Bible to provoke them to believe, to show them. The word reasoned is a very interesting word. It's a word from which we get words like dialogue, dialectic, and it indicates not just a formal sermon when he preached the gospel. He just didn't get up there and preach. What he did, what that word means is this. He would preach, but then he would go just like this. What questions do you have? I think what came to my mind, I remember I was doing open-air preaching in New Guinea. I'd go to the markets, and open-air preaching would work there. So I would go in there, I had to not preach, and usually when Bethany was there, bring Bethany, and of course usually the whole family would come, but Bethany would come and play her violin. She played it very well, an instrument they just, they don't even know. So everybody would gather, and then I would preach. And they enjoyed, they, they, that was part of their culture. Nobody would leave when I preached. I remember one day, I was preaching at the market and I'd finished. And then you look for the people who the conviction is on. And this man came up to me and he asked if we could talk. I said, sure. So we went around the corner on the side of the market and both of us sat down. And he was a Jehovah Witness. And he said he had never heard preaching like that. And he began to ask questions. I mean, he heard me proclaim that Jesus is God. That threw him. So what I did was, I went through his questions. We reasoned out of the scriptures. He would later show up at my house. He wanted to reason some more out of the scriptures. And that is the day he would be converted. So when Paul went in, he preached and he reasoned with them. He allowed for questions to take place. I remember being taught, and it was so wrong. I remember being taught, when I was first taught soul winning, that if people ask you questions, just tell them you get back to that. With no intention of ever going back to it. And the motive for that seemed pure at the time, and, and I followed it. It was like this. You, the devil's just trying to get out. You stay on target with the gospel. Just tell me get back to it. Get on target with the gospel. Do you know how wrong that philosophy was? And to think of all the people when I would witness, I think back to high school, all the people I would talk to when they'd ask me questions in the middle of it, I'd say, no, we'll get back to that. Because that's how I was taught to do it. Do you know what they were saying when I was giving the gospel and out of the blue? Here was a common one. I'm not kidding. It happened all the time. Just out of the blue. I would get this question a lot. Wait, what happened to the dinosaurs? And I would just dismiss it. We'll get back to that. That's not important right now. Do you know what they were telling me? Give me a reason to believe. This is why I have been taught in this school why that isn't true. Give me a reason to believe you. Answer the questions. Don't ignore them. I remember one day I got a phone call from a man who was a Latter-day Saint here in town. He was a Mormon. He called up. He'd been listening to our services online. He said, can I come by and talk with you? I said, sure, come on. He came over, he sat in my office. He had a very influential job here in the city of Anchorage. And he told me his background, grew up in Utah, been a Mormon my whole life. And he said, but I am questioning it now. 
And he said, I've listened. I listened online. I have some questions. You know what I said to that? Ask them. Ask them. Let's go through it. Be ready to answer the questions. I don't know. Well, Daniel's not. He must be over in junior church here this morning preaching. Levi might have been the one with me. I don't remember the timing of this. But I've been heading out into a village called Lokan. Now, the two, we already had the two churches going. It was in the village of Sohon and Kudukudu. This was a completely other direction. Those were an hour south. This was an hour north. But there was a key man in that village that got saved. I was doing some uh, night evangelism. I would show a film and then preach. When I showed a film, the entire village would show up. So I'd have 500, 600 people present. And on one of the evenings, I had like two men converted. One of them, though, was not from that village. He was visiting family. And he was what was called the Catholic catechist in his village. They did not have a priest in all the villages. What they would do is they would train what they called a catechist, and he would lead the services in that village. Well, he got converted. We talked for hours. He got converted. And so he kept on asking. He'd come up to his village and come up to his village. So finally, I set aside time on Tuesday evenings. I'd finish up, and I'd head out there. I'd get out there about 5 o'clock, about an hour before dark. It was six, we were equatorial. Our daylight never changed. 6 a.m., 6 p.m., 365 days a year. I get out there about 5 p.m. And so, so several weeks, I am going out there, teaching, preaching for an hour. Nothing happening. And then I'm out, I come out there one day, and I didn't plan on this when I left. But when I got there, I said, you know what, I'm going to do this different. I got out there, I sat down, all these men are present sitting down there. And I said, I told them how you've been listening to me every week. I said, now I just want questions. You've been listening. What are your questions? Because clearly there's something not registering. There's something that's preventing them. And then we just sat there awkward for, I I bet you probably a full 20 minutes. Nobody said a word. I'm not saying nothing. I'm just going to wait for them. So it's just quiet. We just sat there. Think about that for like 20 minutes. They realize I'm not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. Finally, one of the young men, he's probably 20 to 25 years old, asked the first question. And he asked a question you might not think is in connection to Oh, it was very connected. I was the white missionary. And he said he knew just because of word that had traveled from the churches that are there that there's certain things that I preach against. And he had talked about one of the plants. It wasn't marijuana, but equivalent of marijuana, basically. And it gave a, a drug effect. And I was against it. And he said, here's something I don't understand. Why can't I use this if God made it? And I knew what he was saying. Give me a reason to believe. Answer that question, and then the questions just started coming. Now it's well in the dark. They're asking all the questions. That night, ten men converted. That night, ten put their faith in Christ that night. You have to read. No, no, we were taught to do. Here's what we were taught when it came to soul winning. We never even saw how destructive it was. You got somebody who would finally listen. Most of the time, they just listen to you out of politeness, not because they're under any conviction whatsoever. 
And this is how it went. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you recognize that you're a sinner? You do? Great. That's, that's good. But the way you sin is death. You know that because you're sinning, you're going to go to hell? Uh, yes. Okay, good. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we'd head into Romans chapter 10. We'd head into Romans chapter 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, and I believe in the heart that, that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth in right, with the mouth confession is made in salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. You know what we had? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of false converts. If they went to ask a question, we'll get back to that. Do you know how easy it is to actually lead people? I've mentioned this before. For a few months when I got out of the Air Force, when I was at Continental here in Anchorage, Alaska, I sold cars for a few months. And they would actually pay us extra if you got a customer to look underneath the vehicle. Do you want to know how easy that was? So we'd have vehicles in the showroom. So what I would do, I would just walk to the vehicle right in front of the management window, and I would just bend down myself and say, look under. Know what they would do? They would follow. Not because they necessarily wanted to. To be honest, mostly it was just to be polite. Not to have an awkward situation occur. We try and avoid conflict. We try and avoid awkwardness. And then we were claiming multitudes converted, when in reality, they were just following what you were saying. We need to reason with people out of the Scriptures. The Bible tells us, be ready to give it an answer for the hope that is within you. You see, I'm not ready for questions. Well, then get ready. Did you ever think that what you could do is just take a couple of weeks and think, okay, what are the possible questions that are likely to come? Study the answers out of the scriptures then. Prepare. What questions would you have? What is it that you think that that, that might prevent you? I remember the very first time I heard the gospel. I've mentioned it before. It was not when I got saved. I was staying overnight at a cousin's house. He lived in an apartment complex, and there was a Southern Baptist church out front, and they happened to be having a youth activity that night. I was 12 years old. I'd never heard the gospel. And they came door to door inviting any teenagers to that youth event that Saturday night. And so me and my cousin went. We went. I sat right in the front row. They showed, I don't know how many of you have seen this. I have it at my house. It's, it's a classic. They showed this Christian movie made around 79 or 81 called uh, Super Christian. Things a classic. And I watched that thing and was just amazed. And then that youth pastor got up there and he talked about Christ. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've never heard anything like this. And then know what he did? He followed this pattern. When he finished, he said, does anyone have any questions? I was the first one up. There are things I didn't understand yet. I started asking. I still remember when I finished asking him question upon question. He said, you're not far from it. And it would be later, much later, not, well, not much later, but about a year later on, I'd actually get saved from that time. But do you know how much he helped me when he said the word, do you have any questions? Reason. Christianity ought to be defensible, and it is. It is a reasonable faith. 
This also teaches us something very important. Follow me, I'm almost done. No one gets saved on emotionalism. No one. The only people who actually get converted are those who believe in their minds the true facts of the gospel. It's not complicated, it's not hard, but it's not based on emotionalism. Easy. Paul did not come in, have a flute playing softly in the background, working the crowd, and manipulating an invitation. Paul simply used the scriptures to provoke, to persuade. That's what he did. As we're going to see next week, it even details for us, and I, I can't wait to get into next week. That's why I know I can't get I, I knew I'd be like at this time right here, and I can't get into it. What he sought to prove. And we're going to look at the Old Testament for what Paul was proving. He used the scriptures. This is what we give. This is what we are to know. This is what has the answer. We are to go knowing the importance of what we hold. We are to go with an ability to be able to answer some basic questions that will come up. Be willing to give that response and to give that gospel with some passion, knowing what you have. We have literally the truth right now that can turn Anchorage upside down. See, the key is not us putting on a rock concert and saying, come on in, let's make our church as carnal as we can so we can make all the carnal just feel so comfortable in our services. This service is about the honor of God. It's not about us. We go out to preach the gospel. And if anyone, those who do get converted, you know what they're going to do with their life? They're going to want to honor God. They're going to want to seek to glorify Him. We need to stay on target. Two things we looked at today. The first two things that we see here is we've got to go propel ourselves. We've got to be able to do that. And we've got to be able to provoke others. Using the Scriptures with reason. Giving them a reason to believe. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, listen to this portion very quickly. I know I have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, but I need you to listen to this. Just keep your mind focused.